1: hey everybody tonight we're debating capitalism versus socialism and we're starting right now with our capitalist side going first with their introductions thanks so much for being here steve and sod the floor is all yours
2: and thank you james and uh for stephen and leo for joining us for this debate tonight and for josh for setting up the debate as well looking forward to a robust debate on the merits of these economic systems there is no question in my mind that capitalism, as an economic system, is the greatest guarantee of individual human freedom. I will not, however, make the statement up front that capitalism requires democracy, nor will I say that socialism is synonymous with totalitarianism. What I will propose is that capitalism is the most moral, just, and direct conduit to individual human freedom. We're gonna define capitalism as follows. An economic system in which the production which production and property is privately owned and labor is exchanged through private interactions between individuals through voluntary association. As I understand the socialist view of economics, and I know this critique varies between socialists, is that the poor and the lowest cl- lower class do not have the freedom to create those voluntary associations. They must participate in a system which is inherently unequal and therefore are exploited by capitalists, such as the, owner, the shop owner, the shareholder, or the Wall Street investor that unfairly benefits from the fruits of their labor. There are many across the spectrum from laissez-faire libertarians all the way to your staunchest Marxists that have negative views of those that get off the fruits of the labors of others. Though everyone seems to disagree as to who those leeches are. On the left, it is typically seen as the wealthy capitalist who, that doesn't work on the GM production line, the Amazon Fulfillment Center, or the Tyson Slaughterhouse. Those on the right look to those that can productively work and choose not to, that exploit social welfare programs and don't contribute to the market system in productive ways when they ought to. It is my contention that if capitalism is naturally exploitive, socialism is intentionally exploitive. It is designed to extract wealth, capital, and labor from individuals to distribute it for broader social good. I'm sure our interlocutors believe that this can be done through purely democratic means, and in a just equitable way. My contention is that the controls would be, that would be needed to make this occur would be baked into a system that would ultimately be corruptible and prone to inefficiency and could create the same inequality that they propose to rectify through socialism. I'm gonna keep things short on my part tonight so we can get into the meat of things. But what I'd like to know is how their specific brand of socialism is to function without the necessary mechanism of government corrosion which I see as necessary for such a system to exist? How is freedom of association still maintained if you must participate in a system, in a workplace such as socialism, whether that workplace would be, whether or not that workplace would be democratic? How is labor supposed to be compensated for if wage is no longer the form of compensation? How do you expect such a system to function, to actually function in the real world without top-down government control? With that, I'll yield my time, to Finter.
3: You go on there. Should I just start? Okay. Uh, Sorry, this is my first rodeo. Uh, So the degree to which an economy thrives or falters can arguably be summed up in not simply the degree of material or human capital it has, but the degree to which systems in place allow that capital to dynamically respond to change and organize themselves. To facilitate this, that system must minimize and signal costs. So not just direct material or transaction costs, but the oft-overlooked agency cost. Agency costs are essentially the costs incurred when an agent, given powers on behalf of the principal, an organization, person, or group of persons, acts in divergence with the interests of the principal. These manifest particularly between management and stakeholders and voters and politicians. Agency costs, I would submit, are the single largest reason why socialism does not perform as... mm. Pardon me, as well as capitalism, be it in the form of worker socialism, social democracy, or state socialism. Those interests diverge much more greatly with them as it takes more coordination, information, or negotiation to align those interests. We see this with voters being more satisfied by their local politicians than the ones at the federal level, as now you have larger voter pools and more competing interests. We see it in traditional corporations where the more managers you have, I have nine bosses, vis-a-vis office space, the less productive employees are, either through micromanagement or having managers at different knowledge levels and performance markers directing employees under them. In either case, worker ownership invites more managers, or at least more owners who would be selecting them. The latter doesn't always happen, of course. We see examples of agricultural cooperatives functioning well. And indeed, most of the largest cooperatives, at least in the US, are primarily agricultural. That is because they involve fewer people, and the knowledge level and interest among worker owners are more or less the same. If you were to take a large industrial conglomerate where aerospace engineers, marketing directors, and welders all we're to evaluate whether someone is sufficiently productive at their job. There'd be a great deal of miscalculation involved. Nonetheless, the fact that cooperatives do not always fail is not the same thing as them performing better. Indeed, cooperatives fail to be competitive at scale with, without bringing in outside investors, rendering them less or rendering them increasingly less like a cooperative. Corporations reduce this agency cost of management by having stockholders appoint directors whose full-time job is just to run the company, along with them appointing managers as needed. One can argue co-ops can select their directors too, but those directors are now answerable to all of the employees whose interests may not be in line with the long-term health of the company. Corporations have lower agency costs when stockholders select their director and fire them for underperforming because they're selecting someone whose job is to further their interests. One argument for co-ops is that It is more fair or more moral, often invoked with the refrain of democratizing the workplace as the workers are the ones producing the wealth. Agency costs notwithstanding, this often comes with the implication that such firms should be restructured into co-ops by law, which, if that is a recommendation here, it flies in the face of individual workers' rights and the concept of democracy. Some workers do not want to be an owner, which comes with more responsibility as well as more risk, since now one can lose their life savings in the stock of the company they work for should it fail. The risk adverse nature of workers informs of why most don't start their own businesses, as well as why agency costs are higher for cooperatives. This is all before considering that isn't it just the workers producing wealth, but the material capital of the capitalists that make those workers be able to produce that much more wealth. And it was the capitalists that took on the risk in doing so, which further renders the idea of the wealth producer being the legitimate owner, not one consistently applied. Now, many advocates of cooperatives point to the success of Mondragon in the Basque country of Spain, but tend to overlook that it is a federated cooperative, making it more like a conglomerate, many of whose largest members have outside investors, making them less like cooperatives themselves. And Spain's corporate tax structure favors cooperatives, with lower tax rates for co-ops, and especially for specially productive co-ops. Some even point how Mondragon fared better through various Spanish financial downturns. But again, this overlooks that one of the largest members of Mondragon is Spain's third largest credit union, Laboral Cuxta. I'm pronouncing that correctly, which gives preferential loans to its co-op members, but was still had to be bailed out by the Bank of Spain in 1986. Mungong appears to succeed to a greater degree than other co-ops by behaving the least like a co-op and arguably more like a a conglomerate with with an ESOP program, along with receiving special treatments by the government. But what about nationalized systems like the post office or healthcare or fire departments? Well, it turns out that at least for the US post office, it has been mounting unfunded liabilities since the 60s when its workers strike to be able to form a union, restructuring the post office to be funded by postal services primarily instead of the government, but given a huge line of credit when it posts losses. Besides, several developed countries have already privatized their postal services. Private fire departments are rare, but do exist, and they do perform more efficiently than many public ones, and do so on a municipal, municipal contract, despite the common association with such services being provided only to the individual clients who pay their dues. Healthcare is another one. Uh, people often claim that the reason the U.S. healthcare system is broken, which it is, uh, because it is profit-driven. Sure. Is anybody else hearing it? Because it might just be me my voice breaking as I'm running out of breath or whatever. <laughs> hmm. I didn't hear it. Did anybody else?
4: My mic's been muted, so I don't think it's coming from me. But if it's been happening, I haven't been paying attention. I'm sorry. Hmm.
3: Oh, you know what it might be? Maybe I'm unconsciously clicking my pen without realizing it. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, where was I? Uh, so uh, yeah, so because the healthcare system is, is profit driven, but this ignores that less than 5% of US healthcare spending is profit with less than 0.5% being via, via insurance. It also ignores the Singaporean system, which reforms on par, if not better than the least costly single payer system in Korea, all while being more privately funded than even the US. A simple critical examination of just single payer countries themselves shows a huge amount of variability among single payer systems and costs, which tells us there are non trivial factors other than the presence or absence of single payer. And there isn't even a strong relationship between the degree to which healthcare is publicly funded and a difference in costs. Claims that these systems are more efficient because they're more socialized or nationalized almost always relies on ignoring any other potential factor and its degree of impact. At the end of the day, when advocating for nationalization of anything, we must recognize the state for what it is, sanctioned violence. Now, violence can be justified under certain circumstances, but only to the extent to which it is necessary. If you can achieve your goals with less violence or without violence, then I think we can all agree that's a morally superior method. Some, things, some methods are necessary with the state, but even in the existence, albeit rare frequency, of natural monopolies or even public goods are not themselves proof of the state ha- having to necessarily provide them, let alone the state provide any other things. Ultimately, the ad, I would argue the advocacy of socialism in one form or another is one that is based on sincere good intention, intentions as well as expediency, which are often the means by which ideas take hold and thrive in politics. However, politics is an arena where ideas do not need to work or even be tested to survive, so socialism requires a more robust argument. And with that, I'm done.
1: Thank you very much for that opening statement. And we will now kick it over to our socialism team. Want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more juicy debates coming up. And want to let you know whether you were listening via YouTube or to Modern Day Debate on podcast we have got our guests linked in the description we highly encourage you to check out their links so you can read or hear more from each of our guests and with that we'll kick it over to cyber Port as well as leo as they make their case for socialism thanks so much for being here guys
5: yeah it's kind of weird that leo left just to see it like you know that's just okay i'm defending this on my own i guess um yeah so um it was something that kind of came up in the last uh debate that uh, myself and leo did on this very topic Uh, It was a little bit of a point of contention, although it was mainly Leo that kind of said it. I'm going to kind of take that mantle tonight. So the point of contention was is that Leo stated that there has there has not been a socialist country. There has not been a country that has operated under socialism. Um, I agree with this statement. Uh, If you can find me. A country that, you know, is both operating as a social democracy more akin to, you know, your Norway, Denmark, Sweden, they're sort of like they're very robust and very secure social safety net and uh, social protections, as well as every single Uh, institution, organization, business, like anything that you can think of where there is a hierarchy involved. So someone from the bottom to the very, very top and everybody in between where they have been put in those positions through the democratic process, thereby a worker co-op. Unless you can point to me a system or a, a, a country where every single aspects of that country has been elected through the democratic process and has, uh, the benefits of, of, uh, what we call a social democracy or, you know, very robust and very expanded social safety nets kind of hasn't been a socialist country. There've been some that have gotten, you know, maybe parts, uh, there has been, uh, you know, uh, statists or you know a, a country operating under statism. Um there are countries in the world that op that expedite pieces of this. I'd uh, I'd mentioned Norway, Denmark, Sweden, wh- which would be more of a social uh, uh democracy. There are worker co-ops in quite a lot of countries all over the world that doesn't make them socialist simply because a, a country has you know socialized medicine does not mean that the country is operating under socialism it just means that that one aspect is socialized um, <clears throat> so yeah I didn't really have kind of much else to say I had said it was going to be a quick opening so I'll leave it over to Leo
4: I just had a, my whistle there before I get going here so the debate between socialism and capitalism is to me always been an interesting debate to be had it's it, it's a it's a discourse that's that's always interested me and as as almost boastful as it might sound it interests me because at some level it it surprises me to see so many people defending a system that fundamentally rests on exploitation in in some sense or another what exactly is socialism? There's been many, many people with many different definitions and, uh, and ideas of what socialism either is or should be throughout history. And I think that a lot of the traditional examples that we often see of what socialism is or how socialism could be construed, I mean, think of your Stalin, your Lenin, your, your Mao Zedong, your Pol Pot. I, I, personally, I think there is a debate to be had on whether or not the The systems and the ideologies they advocated for really enshrine a lot of the strictures of what Marxism fundamentally is. I'm willing to concede for at least the sake of this discussion that they represented it at least in some form. That being said, I think Things like Marxism, Leninism, things like Stalinism, things like Maoism are fundamentally tangential to the discussion that we're having. Socialism, as I would define it, is the socioeconomic ideology in which the means of production, distribution, and exchange are socially owned and democratically controlled by the working class. At least technically speaking, that's how I would define socialism. For people who might not necessarily be as acquainted with certain sociological and economic terminology, socialism is generally construed as having two parts. The first one is, a, is essentially a democratization of the economy by the workers, and the second one would be something along the lines of decommodification now as Stephen has already pointed out no so no country has ever really been socialist now it is true that many nations have have encapsulated certain ideas such as the modification of particular markets healthcare and transportation are two very very prominent ones that we would see in most western democracies and also worker cooperatives existing in the vast majority of countries that we see on the face of the planet so the the main problem that I have with capitalism and I'm going to try to keep this as short as I can because I don't want to uh, take up too much time. But I did want to start by saying I don't view capitalism as a system that was created with the intent of being abusive or extractive. I think that the system has just been utilized to do that because it can so easily return a massive profit to a few amount of people by utilizing the system in such a way, in an abusive and extractive way. So I don't see capitalism as being an intrinsically evil or destructive ideology. I don't think that that was what it was intended to, to do. I just think that that is what it is currently used for, and I don't think that the system is capable of reform. I view capitalism as being fundamentally autocratic, which might sound almost hyperbolic at first, but I think that there's a strong case to be made for that in the fact that um, workers don't have any control over what a company that they work at does. All of the power of what a company is and what a company will do, what its vision is, who gets hired, who doesn't, who's going to be a manager, all of that are... are, are these are decisions that are made by a very, very select few number of individuals. I think that democratizing the workplace and ensuring that everybody who is employed by a firm across our entire economy, not just selectively, would ensure a greater greater workplace happiness and greater content with life. Now, there is empirical data demonstrating the success that worker cooperatives have all across the world, from the fact that they uh, they can absorb price shocks and economic shocks as well as economic downturns just as well, oftentimes better than traditional firms can, to the fact that workplace happiness and wages are oftentimes generally significantly higher, to the fact that they oftentimes survive the first three to five years of business much better than traditional firms do. We can look at all of this data and see that worker cooperatives are in fact a successful means of governing our economy, and I think that it's not just something we should do, it's it's necessary to transition our economy in that direction. Now, what about decommodification? What decommodification means, there's essentially two senses in which it can be construed. We can decommodify labor, which means that labor does not exist as a commodity to be sold for a wage within a market structure. Or And that would be decommodification of labor, or we can look at decommodification in the terms of structuring our markets and the products and services that are provided through them as not being traded for the sake of profit, as being provided to people for the sake of allowing or affording people the products and the services requisite to um, a substantive standard of living. And like I said earlier, I think that some countries, most countries, have have – adapted some of these practices, but I don't think any country has adapted all of them. And I would argue that's what a socialist country is. And I would argue that's what a socialist country needs to be for me to say that it is socialist, at least as Marx and Engels originally laid out. And I would argue that it is not just something that, 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 that could be done, that it is an imperative that humans move in this direction if we are to ensure a sustainable, bright, and progressive future for ourselves and our posterity
1: thank you very much leo and cider and port for that opening statement very excited we're going to jump into the open conversation folks and with that gentlemen the floor is all yours for open conversation you're on mute that's right i just realized that as i so
3: uh i like to start out uh Address, uh, uh, we could talk about something that Leo brought up, how uh, workers have no power uh, when they aren't owners. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but is that necessarily a problem since the consumers still have power? And while everyone's a consumer and not everyone's a worker. So if you have a proper signaling of the conditions of the workplace and if people are intolerant to poor working conditions, be it wages, benefits, or just uh, improper in, in hours, the, work, the consumers can decide to boycott them. So is that necessarily?
4: Um, Yeah, I I would agree to an extent, at least with pretty much everything that you said. But one thing that I would um, choose to elucidate on is the fact that consumers do have power. And in certain respects, I would agree that they have more power than a a laborer does in our markets. But I would argue that consumers generally only have power or at least power that they can express through what's often called a, a term i that that you are familiar with in saying that you are familiar with purchasing power, but I would also argue that purchasing power can be affected by the structure of markets and can be affected by by forces acting within that market that don't necessarily stem from the consumer. And I think that this is very, very prominent in markets that would be in elastics, which is I argue healthcare, where the 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 price curves i think is what is what they're called the supply demand curves don't change relative to they're they're inelastic that demand for a product doesn't change its value it's always going to be worth something those are people rather are always going to pay something for that like healthcare because it's it's one of those things people need to survive. So I would argue that consumers do have more power than labor. Did we lose
3: it? Leo cut out for me. Would be,
5: yep. It's <clears throat> so the end of your sentence there, Leo was uh, roll body. You cut out. What's up? The end of your last am, sentence. Was am I back? Role body. Yep. Am C3. I back?
4: Okay. Um. Sure. I have. I have no idea what was going on. Um. Can, you guys can hear me, right?
3: Hey, yeah. You cut out just a moment ago.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Give me a second your- here. There we go. <sighs> What so where 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 did I cut out at? Uh,
3: around uh, time out the you know you know elasticity of healthcare is that where, is where you started to garble out?
4: Oh, so what I was what I was bringing up in elastic markets as an example that while consumers do have power in the markets that their power doesn't extend to the level that that of the of the capitalists the industry owners would and also while we can boycott companies we feel are performing poorly th- that is a very nuanced subject mainly because there are because of well what i would argue is monopolization which i think is something inherent to capitalist systems whereby there are only certain firms where we can go to receive some products so even if they engage in behaviors we would otherwise disagree we don't have anywhere else to receive these products or services that are requisite to us living our lives so we can't just say hey i'm not going to buy a product from you anymore because you're the only place i can get this product from on top of that i don't think that boycotts generally have worked i think that um that i
3: Well, uh, we lost them again. I think, think what that- we
1: might want to do just until Leo's internet no. catches up is maybe kick it over to Cider and Port to give a response. Leo, I hate to do that, but just because your your internet is wobbly, and so we were kind of losing what you were saying there again. And so maybe we'll give you just a, a bit of time to maybe hopefully it stabilizes
3: Uh, yeah. It's also possible mm. that just if he just turned off his camera, it might help if it's just the bandwidth. It yeah, help. it might just help That's for a the
5: great bandwidth.
1: Idea. Um, yeah, so Josh, um, I. Uh, I, I uh, uh, basically, Leo, I think he, your connection is behind and choppy. And so I was just saying to Cider Import, maybe he should talk for a while just mm-hmm. until your connection can hopefully stabilize. Cause we couldn't hear a lot of what you were saying. And if That's you fine. repeat it again, That's we fine. probably won't hear it again. That's fine.
5: Yeah, so Josh, there was a few things that I kind of took down during your um, opening, which was, uh, you would say that there was like this difference between uh, politicians at the state level and politicians in like Congress and the Senate, um, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, and, and that, you know, that like this. State politicians kind of tend to represent uh, the people better. It's it's kind of ironic though that the the root of the problem there is capitalism because it's because of. Well, I mean, it's because of lobbyists. It's because of uh, you know, like massive corporations that are uh, donating x amounts of hundreds of thousands at a time to a given politician, so that they get elected, and then that they go into uh, Congress and the Senate, and they are able, they are in a position to be able to write and draft legislation that directly benefits them, uh, benefits the
2: um, the uh, corporations. To to speak on that, Stephen, do you don't think that would be a problem in a in a socialist society where industry does have influence? I mean, no. especially if you're specifically no. thinking small or larger scale industries I don't. being singular, why, no. why do you I think mean, that would be different? I mean, well, they're because... going to still have interest in, in benefits and, <clears throat> and some kind of uh, incentive to have politicians either agree with their society or their their specific industry over another industry and unless you're considering even uh, having some kind of market well, competition I... within those co-op systems there's going to even be more of a pressure for those individual co-op systems maybe not influenced specifically through money but through favors or uh incentives to uh you know Influence specific politicians, and politicians influence specific industries. There's, there's, there's still going to be the same problem. It's just going to be a different problem.
3: Well, not only that, but even today, unions <laughs> are they, they lobby a lot of uh, a ton. In fact, among super PAC dollars, unions contribute to super PACs more than corporations do. Uh,
5: yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I, I honestly
3: I, kind of I don't f- see that as a negative. Well, I think corruption is a negative, whether it's from corporations or unions. I think the issue there, which I I think is a problem, is that you have much more concentrated regulatory power, which – when you have more regulatory power, you increase the incentive to capture it. When it's more concentrated, it's more easily captured. If you reduce or diffuse that power – and there's many ways you can go about doing that – you would either reduce the incentive to capture it, or if it still is captured, less damage can be done in doing so. I think – lobbying is a is a symptom of the of the deeper problem, and it's not really the cause of it. And the problem is the state intervening too much on in markets, whether they be socialist or capitalistic markets.
5: Yeah, so I would just kind of have to say that i I, I would respectively disagree with what Steve said. Um, so we know that that candidates for um, Congress and for the um, Senate can get elected purely through a grassroots um, effort. I mean, you look at any of the squad, uh, any of the Justice Democrats that are um, in, uh, I think Richard Ojeda in North Carolina came like ridiculous, he didn't actually get in, but he came ridiculously close. Like that is like a purely like to the heart red state. And he came, I think it was in two or three points and he's a Justice Democrat. Uh, And like these people can get, uh, so, you know, as I said, members of the squad. You have um, you have Rokana, who is in the Senate. Of course, Bernie Sanders. All of these types of, of characters can get in purely on on small dollar donations, and I, no with no need of a super PAC or any sort of a major corporation that are getting in. I,
3: I I think it should be noted that like maybe, I know at least for AOC, uh, she was recruited by Zach Exley, who is with the justice democrats and that's they're funded in part by soros so it's not really entirely grassroots it certainly is partially that and definitely tries to hold this air of grassroots thing but it's very much that you get a lot of plausible deniability from the appearance of grassroots whatever to the extent you actually are
4: wouldn't that wouldn't that be more due to the fact that they i mean they can anybody can donate to the justice democrats and george soros donates I mean, obviously, he's got significantly more wealth at his disposal so he can donate significantly more than the average person can. But I think that there's a difference between somebody who's really rich providing a donation, even maybe a generous donation to – and not even necessarily a political campaign to any sort of organization and – actively funneling tens if not hundreds of millions into um, a super PAC designed to elect particular candidates that hold to particular ideologies that would benefit the very people who are funneling money into their campaigns. Now, you had mentioned earlier that unions do that. What I wanted to say is that, that they're supposed to. Their job is to lobby on behalf of the workers. And I would argue that that organizations lobbying our government as well as our at least currently capitalist economic system and the the people that sit at the top of it lobbying them to ensure that they have some decent standard of living, I don't think is a bad thing. And I think it's drastically different than massive industries like the fossil fuel industry collectively pooling hundreds of millions of dollars into organizations that then distribute that money to politicians to protect the interests of the oil industry, which as we've seen and see today, come at a detriment to not just ourselves now and our environment, but our future societies, because they'll have to deal with these problems.
3: At, at the same, I don't disagree. That it absolutely happens. And that in, 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 in basically corrupting the process that has happened with fossil fuels, but we also see it with environmentalists who, have, who successfully lobbied to essentially gut nuclear in the 80s, which then helped keep fossil fuels in place for decades. And in, ironically enough, much of the propaganda that was pushed out was made by fossil fuel companies. So it doesn't really matter. I don't think it matters who it's coming from. The problem is is that we've concentrated too much power, and then the stakes increase, and then everybody's just in this huge bidding war for it, and you have all this rent-seeking, and that's the problem. And uh, unions are no more virtuous than corporations, in my opinion. I, I don't have any problem with unions in principle although I do have a problem with, like, public sector unions are an issue because they have an adversarial relationship with the taxpayer, but unions in principle aren't necessarily bad, but they also aren't any more virtuous than corporations either, because they are, consist of human beings, and they are just as subject to corruption as and anything else.
2: They're, they're lobbying for their interests is just the same as union workers and uh, Greenpeace or the NRA or any single uh, entity that has some private interest, and many times we, we look at those kinds of organizations and say, well, that's on the other side and I don't agree with it. So they must be some kind of negative. Well, there's a, that, that money doesn't come from nowhere. I mean, there's people that donate to those organizations to provide that interest into the, the governmental system. Now I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally not mind uh, having lobby, lobbying completely removed from the system. I mean, that would be, I mean, that would, I mean that that would that would it's, solve a lot of problems across largely, the board.
3: It's largely unenforceable, unfortunately, and really yeah, exactly. what you have to what you have to do is you have to reduce the incentive for corp for regulatory capture and. A lot of people are kind of iffy on reducing regulatory power, but you can certainly diffuse it. You can increase the number of legislators per capita. You can have more local governance where having to secure the the loyalty of a particular candidate to your ideology or your specific policies, it doesn't go as far because that vote is diluted. And if you have term limits, it goes even, it's even further diluted. That's, so, what we, that's what we kind of see in parliamentary systems. There's a lot more turnover because if you don't form a coalition – You have another election, and there's far more legislators per capita as well. So I think that's why we see – because even in Finland, Finland doesn't have any restrictions on uh, uh, campaign uh, funding or contribution uh, in terms of total amount that you can have, much like the U.S., but we don't see the same level of corruption. They have more local governance in particular. So the issue, I think, is we have far too much concentrated power, and then interested groups and everyone's interest has has their own interests are now lobbying to – that because if they don't if they don't secure uh, loyalty then somebody else will and then it's going to be to their detriment.
4: So I did want to jump in here really quickly to touch on a point that uh, both uh, Steve and Josh brought up. I, I agree that numerous different organizations with numerous different special interests interests donate to political campaigns and other non-political groups and what have you. Um, But the the point that I think, the larger point anyway, that I think that needs to be discussed is – what the interests of those organizations are. If an, if an organization is donating to our government and, and lobbying our government on behalf of worker protection regulations, higher wages, better benefits, things like that, while that is lobbying the government, I don't see that as a negative. But if uh, an industry is lobbying on behalf of the protection of their profits, deregulation of their industry and their businesses so that they can funnel more money into the pockets of shareholders and executives, things like that, uh, while that is lobbying, that comes with negatives that you would not see from organizations lobbying on behalf of a collective of people because I think that that better represents what it is that people want rather than you having industries lobbying our government to protect their power
3: I think I think there I, I would I would I don't fully disagree I don't fully agree so I think it's important to recognize that when unions lobby, they don't lobby on behalf of workers. They lobby on behalf of their own members, even if this means to the detriment of workers outside of that union. A classic example is when- I could agree with that, but I do think it's nuanced. Well, like, I mean, a classic example, which is is uh, so uh, shortly, during Reconstruction, maybe shortly after, while racist white unions in the South lobbied for prevailing the minimum wages, n- knowing to prevent newly freed black slaves to underbid white union oh, yeah.
4: and- unions did that frequently throughout the 30s the 40s and the 50s but african-americans weren't afforded i would argue that that as wrong as it was was more a product of the way that society was back then had african-americans been afforded the same rights i think they would have had or rather enjoyed the same protections from um from those 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 um Those unions. And I do do agree with what you're saying, but I do think it is a little bit more nuanced. I don't think that we can just blanket statement unions – you what they lobby for might help some people, but it can come to the detriment of workers oftentimes. I do think that that is the case with like say the, the NEA, the national education, I think they're a they're a, a bad one. a police police unions. police unions, yep, yep. so i I do agree with you, but I do think that there is nuance there in which unions we're talking about. I think some
2: yes, absolutely for
4: the most part do do some good. but
2: um I so you don't think this would be an issue within a socialist system. Um, that, that there it, would be competing special, interests, special interests? interests. That there be competing interest groups within within that system. Well, y-
4: y- yes, but it, it, I would argue that because the structure of, of market firms would be oriented around the worker, and that. Things such as what particular political campaigns, if, if this is even something they're capable of doing, any particular firm would contribute to would be something that the workers of those firms would collectively vote on, which seems to me that what you would find is that there would be some lobbying of the government, but it would be a collective – collectives of people lobbying the government on behalf of, of protocols or policy that is likely to largely benefit the worker cooperatives and the people who are a part of them. Now, obviously, we don't worker cooperatives aren't as expansive or thorough throughout our societies to know whether or not that's what they would do. But I feel that that's that seems to be a a, a, a cogent argument that could be made.
3: Well, I would I would I would want like so we, we saw a little bit of this in the 30s where you know when unionization increased and many of the things that were in were formalized in the 1938 uh, Fair Labor Standards Act had many of it had already become. Uh, industry standards, largely because unions had gotten gotten it that way. So yes, when, yes. So when when unions collectively organize through voluntary organization and and bargaining to achieve their th- those kind of results, that is a market mechanism that doesn't really. Cr- that's, that doesn't really create these negatives that often come from lobbying which is why which is why I would prefer the fair labor. personally i think the fair labor and Standards act was just a formality for the most part much of that was already kind of yeah, industry standard with that, yeah. and so and th- I, I just
4: I, I just wanted to add in really quickly this is why i advocate for syndicalism rather than the government stepping in though i think that when all other methods have failed and the government is the only thing that we can turn to to step in that then we should do so but yeah, I agree with what you're saying so far.
3: Yeah, so I as I uh, touched on in, in my opening is that if you can achieve your desired results without using the state or some aggressive form of aggressive violence, then that's the that's the better method. Even even if you can get better results from the state, like this is the extreme version I use of this only because it's not, not as an example but for perspective is if tomorrow we had incontrovertible proof that we could cure cancer if we enslaved a random 5% of the population. That, it still would be wrong, so we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are certain thresholds that we find morally intolerable. So I, we should always look for the the least violent solution. And if we can achieve that through market mechanisms and unions through collective bargaining is certainly one of them. I don't think we should, and I didn't want to presume this was a recommendation on your part, whether you wanted to force firms to restructure into uh, co-ops, or simply we should we should want to make it that way, or this is just why this is a great this is a great reason why it should be that way, I, I would definitely be object to um, forcing them to be. If they if, if if workers and firms decide voluntarily to restructure themselves or form new ones, I, I have no problem with that because co-ops aren't morally bad forcing, for, disallowing co-ops by law or forcing things to be co-ops by law. That's bad.
4: So, yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that we should use the, the least amount of authority that we can in implementing the systems we feel are best going to improve the material conditions of everybody that, that, uh, that we, that, you know, everybody in our civilization, I'm going to try to be brief here because I do want um, both Steve and Stephen to jump in here. But I, I would argue socialism does that. I would argue that... W- market firms being structured around the worker and at least a starting with at least selective decommodification would result in requiring less from the government in ensuring that markets are going to operate in a productive and a beneficial manner. And I would argue that the fact that we have had to rely on the state to regulate markets to ensure more equitable distribution of the resources that are gained from those markets amongst all of those who collectively contribute to their production and ensuring the the fair, equitable, and sustainable action of firms in the markets. The fact that we've had to rely on the government to ensure those, I think, is a testament to the failure of a capitalist system, I think a socialist system, a market socialist system in which you still have markets, and there can still be things like competition and new firms and everything, but having them democratically controlled, I think, would result in them operating in a way that is centered more around the worker rather than around simply making a profit at whatever means necessary which would result in less intervention from the government in the markets as that would result in less corruption that we would see in the markets
3: well i, I want to hit that point but i do think we should let steve and steve uh, hit so I, I wrote a little note and i'll we can, we can touch on that again
5: um yeah so um steve what's your kind of like general opinion on um Unions, like, do you think that they can be like corruptible? Like, are they just as bad as like lobbyists, or like, what's the what's the
2: kind of story there? I mean, it, it depends on the I mean, it depends on the situation. I think pretty much anything can be corruptible, and when um, I mean, public sector unions, as we've already discussed, are, are a, a major issue because they do have that relationship with the government already embedded in them. I mean, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the unions sector in uh, Michigan and the United uh, Auto Workers Union. They actually um, are not just for the auto workers. They also have unions within the public sector as well, cooperative unions across different industries leading into actual governmental systems. Which is just bizarre. When I found out, when I found that out, it blew my mind. I had no idea that people that worked for the government were part of the United Auto Workers. So there's there. I I think it's fine if a union is very specific to a workplace to a specific industry. And I understand that 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 crossplay is meant there to be greater collective bargaining against specific industries. So, so if one part of one part of that union is having an issue, then they can call on their buddies and the, on the other part of the union, and then they you know, cross strike or uh, walk out do those kinds of things to ensure that, um, you know, they have great, greater collective power against uh, whatever industry that they're, they're shooting against or wherever they feel that they're wrong. But Again, in principle, unions are not specifically a bad thing. I mean, workers should have protections. Uh, I think that can be done through several ways. Unions is, unions are one. Laws have uh, created, I've never been personally part of a union, but I've never felt exploited as, as a worker, as a wage, uh, wage earner. So I, I don't think that it's necessary to have an equitable workplace, but I do think that they are corruptible as well
5: uh yeah so i mean do you think that like unions are going to better kind of impact like the workers or like would it be kind of like lobbyists who are like going to uh help get a politician elected that that politician is then going to like implement laws to um help the workers like which one do you think is going to do like the most amount of
2: good well I i don't i think specifically uh unions should not be uh, interacting specifically with the government. Uh, if they are concerned about the workers themselves, they shouldn't be specifically
4: Re- funding really quickly. Campaigns. Isn't yeah.
2: that isn't that fundamentally
4: uh, – isn't that sort of opposite of what unions are designed to do? Aren't they designed to lobby on behalf of workers because workers are with, so underrepresented do, but, within,
1: but, within but our, with our market? Should they be doing employer. that?
3: They're supposed to negotiate with their employer. Exactly. And and, and also, if they're a uh, federated cooperative, also with other, like, you know, the, the upper management of that federation. So
4: what does a union do when a corporation does not comply and continues to engage in abusive or extractive tactics? Do they not have the right to lobby the government on behalf of the workers?
3: Okay. Well, I think maybe we, we might be. Uh, falling into an equivocation trap do you mean when you say lobby there do you mean like hey government they are literally like abusing us come and you know investigate this or are you talking about hey we need to change the law kind of thing
4: um you
1: well, are you I, talking I, about i think it money? could
4: be both I, I think it could could be both
3: well what i mean um, is, is that i think any employee or you know anyone who represents that employee has a duty or like to like represent them as well as they can so if if they're actually being abused there are a lot there are rules in place to uh, you know to prosecute and investigate that kind of abuse but that's very different from saying we should Lobby the government to change the law, which maybe the law does need to change, but I think I think they they should be treated distinctively.
4: Yeah, I I would argue that the law does need to be changed. One one of the main critiques that I have with capitalism is that it inherently requires some underclass of workers from which wealth is extracted to maintain the high standard of living of the capitalist industry owners. As we've seen since capitalism has been a thing that has existed, there's been a uh, stark divide. It's often been described in Marxist theory as a divide between the bourgeois and the proletariat.
3: Well, I so it's important to remember that before capitalism happened, there was a lot more poor people. And I agree. And so capitalism has been, on net at least, a good in reducing poverty. In fact, it was actually uh, one statistic. I, I, one, I
4: agree one, to an extent. Yeah. Uh,
3: one st- statistic I remember for the Industrial Revolution was ironically enough the number of people who were poor seemed to go up but that was because the people who were so poor that we were they were literally dying of starvation or exposure they were living long enough to actually be counted among the poor even though they still struggled to get by so it's uh, capitalism nothing is a light switch and it takes time to build those resources and so i i uh I, I, when you when you talk about extracting wealth, I think that I think that has that definitely needs something that we should probably unpack.
4: okay. um, and I have no problem, no problem unpacking that and talking about that. But um, I did want to say really quickly that and this is where I get into it with other leftists. <laughs> online um because at least i would argue and obviously there's going to be those that disagree that i understand what capitalism is as a system and it's sort of the history that it has though I'm, i'm not by any means claiming to be an expert but capitalism is a Better system than feudalism, than you know, chattel slavery, and monarchism that we've had prior. I, I don't, I don't like, like. I said in my intro, I don't view capitalism as a system that was designed as a way of Haha, we're all going to get rich, and they're going to suffer. You know, it wasn't <laughs> this evil thing that these people sat around. It was saying, hey, you know what? We think that more people should be allowed to in- involve themselves and trade in the markets, and you know, create products and services, and have the ability to trade them freely and, and make a living. And I, I think that that's a very good thing. And I do think that at least when measured against systems like feudalism and monarchism, capitalism as an economic system versus those and many others like mercantilism is better, it provides for a little bit more freedom than those systems do. The argument that I would make is that capitalism has been utilized as a method for extracting wealth from an underclass of workers who provide their labor to generate that wealth, though they don't share an equitable amount of the wealth that their labor produces. And that because of that, I would argue that capitalism is a system that humans have transcended, that capitalism, I'm not going to sit here and say it's this evil, terrible, bad system. It's just a system that I don't feel is capable of providing sufficient material conditions requisite to a substantive standard of living for all the for as many humans as we possibly can. And for anybody who would say, well, because I've had, and not that I'm ascribing this to anybody here, but I've had some people that I've had these discussions with say things along the lines of, well, capitalism does provide you know sufficient material conditions for as many people as possible. And if that's the case, I would say that it does a pitiful job because there are many, many more people that. We we could help so I the, the argument that I would make is not that capitalism is evil, but that evil. it is a system. <laughs> yeah, it is a system that humans need to transcend because we've lived beyond its ability to provide for us as a society collectively. That's the argument that I would make.
3: Uh, to, to at the risk of oversimplifying, you're saying that uh, modern society ha- has or can outgrow capitalism. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, so, I think uh, I think before we uh, to really try to uh, address that, when you say equitable distribution or equitable amount of you know wealth extraction, what like what what would that, what does that mean exactly? In your for model?
4: for me, that would mean that the labor power as or just the labor that somebody provides for the production of a good or a service that they receive what would be a fair. I'm trying to think of the right words to use here, and it can be kind of hard to use to to, to find them. A, a fair, I guess you could say, recompense. So I I, I would I, I'm quite certain you know what this is. I would I would hold to Marx's um, labor theory of value that oh. the the now the, I, I don't agree with it exactly as Marx laid out because it is you're, I would you're, argue you're, something that's nuanced but you're,
3: you're, you're referring to from e- from each according to their ability to each according to their need
4: well I think kind of. that the, the the labor theory of value plays into that but I think that the labor theory of value itself is something separate from that that it, that, that is a part of that where it, it, it says that the value of somebody's labor is should be equal to what labor was put in or rather the value of some good or service should be and i would i would add at least in part or in some sense equal to the amounts or the requisite labor to producing that good or service so when i say that somebody is receiving an equitable a, a, a wage, I guess you could say, for what they're doing is that the wage they're receiving is number one always enough to for them to have a, at least a comfortable. I'm not going to say it needs to be you know that they can go out and buy a Gucci bag every month, but a comfortable standard of living, regardless of the society that they live in, but that is also measured against the labor that they provide, the the contribution that they provide to society.
3: So the 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 biggest problem with the labor theory of value is that it only looks at one side of the thing. So it trade trade occurs at the intersection of supply and demand. The mm-hmm. problem with the, this problem with the labor theory of value is that. Um, it fails to account for uh, time preferences and marginal utility. And I would it, agree with that. Yes, Marx, to his credit, attempted to reconcile it, and he called mm-hmm. it socially necessary yep. uh, labor. The problem is mm-hmm. that that basically turns it into the subjective theory of value and everything but name. Where it's the the, the problem is that not all labor is worth uh again like whatever threshold you pick and then it's zero not all not every form of labor is worth that now you can make you can try to structure your society where the only forms of labor that are sold are valuable above that threshold that's possible but ultimately the, you you can't really guarantee that any form of labor sold is worth a, a, that specific minimum amount because it depends on who, how much the people who are buying it are willing to pay for it and also if it's if, if if it's the kind of labor that almost anybody can provide your bargaining power is severely diminished so that that's that's part of the problem but um I was going to say, so yeah, so ultimately, the value of anything, labor included, is not based solely on the demands of those selling it. That doesn't mean that. I would agree. Can, that doesn't mean that we can't try to create a system that minimizes suffering. I don't disagree there, but I think a, a lot of progressive policies that are either socialism in name or socialism in intent. Uh, tend to overlook the, the the idea that instead of examining, let's increase wages, let's increase benefits, let's examine what is driving up the cost of living. And a lot of it is protectionism, protectionism for housing, for NIMBYs at the local level, protectionism at the borders with import tariffs. Uh, I'll, uh, I'm not gonna say it's all of that, but um, much of that is, dr- and, and for education, I mean, one of the big reasons why at least higher education is so much more expensive is that it has been indiscriminately subsidized where now you have all this guaranteed funding that colleges are competing for and among these people fresh out of high school and okay we're not going to increase teaching faculty or computer labs they're going to make fancier dining halls or student centers or athletic facilities because they're competing to bring those students there to get those guaranteed dollars. Teaching faculty per student has not really changed ratio wise since the sixties, but administrative faculty has doubled, if not tripled. And, and the federal reserve uh, did a study and they found roughly for every dollar increased in tuition, uh, Federally backed grants and loans, tuition increased 66 cents, and there's a huge pass-through effect. So the mm-hmm. problem is that we're industry, when, you're, when you when you artificially restrict or artificially subsidize something, that's just a recipe for the price increasing. That doesn't mean that you, that. So I think the problem here is there's a very expedient way, like okay, this is a problem. We want more people to afford this, so let's uh, pay for it more, but without really kind of examining what that's going to uh, uh, lead to. And in the case of pass-through tuition, <laughs> at first, it was it, it didn't seem nothing at first, but then now tuition goes up a little, more people now need the loans, and then it goes up and then it's created a feedback loop. And like back, back way back in the day, when people decided you could just work a summer job and afford your college throughout the most of the year, and that was mostly true, at least for state schools, uh, that's when loans were much harder to get, the interest rates were higher, uh, higher and the exception rates were lower. And that's really what we had have in education and in healthcare, I would argue that it's a combination of we are artificially restricting supply in all sorts of ways, and we're artificially uh, increasing demand in ways that probably are not an effective use of dollars. We can definitely reform end of life care. I mean, people over sixty-five are consuming almost a third of all healthcare spending, and Medicare is only twenty percent of healthcare spending. So, and we
4: have an aging population.
3: I the aging population. I actually did a a. a a, a regression model in my in college, tr- trying to isolate what potential factors might be for healthcare. And I thought aging population might be one like the percent of the population over 65. It actually wasn't as significant as I expected. Wow. The, the most, and I also, I also expected population density to be a factor, but it really wasn't. The ones that were the most significant factors were the, the single biggest one was median household income higher the income, more people are willing to spend on healthcare, and part of that is that you have a lot more quality of life kind of care, yeah. and uh, or even, but uh, it's also, you know, you'll, you'll, you're will you'll willing to pay for more, uh, the, the, the earlier uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, and you're not going to wait for it to go generic, you just immediately get like this, because it's already available. Uh, we also spend a lot more on testing, like we have a much higher cancer incidence rate, which was the second biggest factor, but we also Are much more. um, We spend a lot more on testing. We catch cancer a lot more, and we treat it a lot more. So we have we have a a more than above average cancer uh, survival rate, but at a much higher cost. So there's definitely diminishing returns in how much, even when we're trying to like you're not just you know bilking people for premiums, but so healthcare in the U.S. is a broken ass system. I'm not going to say it's it's okay at all, but I really. When I, when I looked at it, uh, the, the thing that kind of led me to that was that looking just at single payer countries, Norway per capita PPP costs two and a half times that of South Korea, even though it's also single payer. So there's 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 clear factors other than single payer. And in Singapore, actually, let's see, I think I have a really cool chart that I made uh, that if I can share my screen uh, that kind of highlights exactly why the discussion on healthcare isn't asking the right questions. I, am I able to share my screen here? Yes,
1: or? ready for you.
3: OK, let's see uh, right here. So that's coming up. So what this what this is, is it's a breakdown of public and private uh, spending on healthcare per capita and dollars. And then from left to right is an increasing portion of total healthcare spending that is public. And what you kind of see is there really isn't any a clear pattern. So what I, I don't think the uh, the issue is it needs to be more publicly uh, funded, I think the issue is that we're not asking the right questions of what factors are really d- driving up the cost of healthcare. And the one thing that stuck out to me was South Korea is the cheapest single payer, and it has high, it has a tiered system, and it has high out-of-pocket costs. And so does Singapore. And Singapore isn't a single payer system, but it's basically the same cost as South Korea. It's it's like a it's like a tiered multi-payer system, kind of like the U.S., but it isn't the crazy town that is the U.S. And uh, so. I don't think that's why I don't think they're implementing single payer in the U.S. with no other changes would necessarily actually save the cost of delivering care. Um, it would it would shift who's paying that cost. but That's not really the same thing. And I think it, it's, it's, it's really easy. The single payer is very seductive because it's a very it's a simple concept. It's an easy political sell. But and I'm not going to say I'm not going to say the single payer is bad because there's just as much as I would say there isn't strong evidence that it reduces cost. There's also not strong evidence that it increases cost. Um, but at the same time uh, I've looked for a more thorough study uh, that, cause I mean, it, this was just my college project. And I, I looked at, uh, let's see the factors that I looked at were medium household income costs that are out of pocket, fertility rate, uh, percent over 65 doctors per capita, population density, and a uh, percent that was public. And most of them were pretty much like, they had R-square value less than one, except for median household income, age standard, cancer incidence rate, and uh, percent out-of-pocket. Percent out-of-pocket was actually negatively correlated. The higher the percent out-of-pocket, the lower the cost. And the U.S. is actually below average. Uh, the average percent of costs that are out-of-pocket in the OECD is 16%. The U.S. is 10 Only the U.K. and France are really lower than them. And the Nordic average is 20%, and then South Korea is 35 and Singapore is right there at 35 But Singapore is not in the OECD. I had to get World Bank data for that
1: one. One sec. We just had a request. Someone asking for the two Steves. In particular, if you guys want to weigh in, we want to give you a chance, Cider and that's, Port, as well as Steve. I'm just as
2: captivated. I'm just as captivated at this point as as uh, probably <laughs> the audience as well. So, so that's an excellent yeah. presentation. I'm uh I I'm glad that I stayed away from healthcare because I'm, I'm not that well versed in it myself. I've I've got a little practical information on it.
3: No, so but, um yeah. oh sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no. One one thing that I was I was curious about is the decommodity. Decommodification of, of labor, how, how is that supposed to be implemented? How, how are you looking at are you looking at extro- like just completely removing wages? And I don't I don't think that's how you were putting it earlier. But I guess I'm, I'm confused as to what you mean by that and how you how you're thinking that you're going to be able to figure out what a single worker is worth uh, in, in a specific industry and how you make that equitable across the system. So that holy god there's there's
4: there's there's a lot to respond to so i'm going to try to first i'm going to start with that question um i don't think that decommodification of labor means that the labor doesn't have a value i think what it means is that the value of labor isn't a commodity on the markets it's not something that we trade on markets as a commodity it's something that's sort of inherent to the fact that somebody is a worker this allows them the freedom to work where they please or work in whatever way they please while still ensuring that they have the requisite material conditions to sustain their standard of living. Um, I did really quickly want to respond, and I I can certainly make this quick, to what um, Joshua said there. As it concerns the labor theory of value, the, the main contention that he had with it is actually essentially the same main contention that I have with it, which is why I, I've sort of coined it myself, though I, I don't have like any formalization of it. I, I've sort of said the modified labor of theory – or labor theory of value, rather, because I, I, I think that Marx was on something with the labor theory of value, but I don't think that he quite hit the nail on the head there. I think that there are other factors that determine the cost of a good or a service. The, the main point that I have with the labor theory of value is that the labor requisite to the production of a good or a service should play a major factor in the cost of that, though not necessarily <laughs> – the only factor that plays into the cost of that good or service as well as that what the worker is receiving for the production of that good or that service is is enough for them again to have have a substantive standard of living as it concerns what you brought up with healthcare, and I believe it was education was the other market you brought up Uh, some of the problems you pointed out with these markets especially with with education with the um the 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 student loans issue that you were mentioning, I would actually agree that that is a problem, that the, the the cost goes up because more money is put into the student loan program and so that it seems that universities are utilizing that as a means to capture more revenue by increasing their tuition so that they capture more revenue out of the student loan program. I would argue that this is a result of the fact that education alongside healthcare is an inelastic market, that the the, the cost of the products and services provided by that Industry or that market do not depend on the supply or the demand of them. People are willing to pay whatever they can for these things because they are, at least for the most part, requisite to to a decent standard of living in the society that we have today. But you you would also mention that you hadn't seen any evidence that that single payer health care seems to reduce the overall cost of health care. I do have a study that was published in, in ANALS.org, which shows that the the U.S. system that we have now, compared to systems in Canada, is actually significantly more expensive, and most of that has a re- is a result of overhead costs or the wages that are paid to executives and shareholders. There's well, I, also a, another one that I have here from that, – that's in journals.plos.org that shows the same thing, and it was a meta-analysis of 22 single-payer plans over pat, the past 30 years starting, and I believe it was 2018 or 2019, that showed that single-payer systems seem to reduce the overall cost of healthcare provided on a collective basis.
3: Well, so I don't disagree. Uh, doctors in the U.S. are paid far more than in other countries, particularly. And we have a much uh, higher ratio of specialists. I don't disagree there. And, and part of that is informed by the cost of higher education in the U.S. Uh, but uh, with regards to administration costs, it's I, I that one can definitely uh, play some shenanigans when it comes to admin costs, because administrative efficiency isn't just percent of your budget, because you. Uh, Well, in terms of dollars per capita, Medicare actually spends more in dollars per capita than private insurance. And it's not because – but it's important to remember that the percent of your budget that is admin isn't necessarily administrative efficiency. If if you're a retail store and your wholesale costs double but everything else stays the same – your administrative costs as a percent of your budget go down, but you didn't become administratively more efficient, and that's kind of what it can. You, you, it, I'm not saying necessarily that's the case here, but we, it, you get, you you, you can't just look at percent of the budgets as okay. There, plus not only that, but with at least I agree, get. and with Medicare, I think it's important to recognize that not all the, the entire cost of administrative and Medicare doesn't even fall entirely on the balance sheet for Medicare. Well, like for example, uh, collection. And Medicare doesn't do collections. The IRS does. Uh, legal, you don't. You have much. You have a lot. You're pretty limited on how you can sue Medicare. But the DOG kind of helps you out a lot as well. And advertisement. Advertisement is kind of a weird one because every time a politician talks about Medicare, that's free advertisement, in a way. <laughs> but there's also Medicare because it's kinda isn't really. It doesn't administrate fraud as vigorously as as. Uh, Private insurance—they have a much higher fraud rate. They have a fraud rate of about nine to ten percent, which is kind of enormous. Whereas for, yeah,
4: uh, no, that is true. It's, it's for, a little for private, outrageous.
3: A private insurance—it's about four to five. And uh, now I'm not going to—I'm not going to say private insurance is just great and super magical because there's all sorts of uh, uh, issues there. But and my, my my issue with a lot of comparison of single uh systems is. It's very difficult to, to cross compare because even what counts as admin like how it, canada administrates itself is different than how medicare or the u.s administrates itself so it's it's difficult to compare apples to apples but my my, my point was really that uh someone lost my train my thought like the worst time no uh, <laughs> is that in trying to isolate those factors it's it, we're not asking the right questions really so what is what what is driving up the cost of healthcare is are americans consuming more healthcare is the cost of healthcare more are we more unhealthy The us has the highest obesity rate in the developed world we also have one of the highest violent crime rates in the developed world even if even if healthcare costs the exact same as elsewhere we still have more healthcare spending per capita so how much of that is just that we are more unhealthy we are more violent we are just there's more strain on the healthcare system. And if that healthcare system is artificially restrained, either from certificate of need laws or uh, FDA restrictions on importing drugs, or even arguably onerous licensure laws where, which artificially restricts the number of doctors or even just uh, nursing practitioners, those little things can add up. And it, 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 healthcare is a complicated thing. So I'm not gonna say what the answer is, I just think I have an issue with saying, well, single-payer will solve all of our problems. Well, I don't think it's that's a simple answer. At the very least, just simply switching out everything in the U.S., given the regulatory structure that we have, that's why I'm not really convinced single-payer in the U.S. is necessarily better. Because if you look at a number of single-payer implementations, I won't say all because I haven't looked at all of them, Much of the, much that comes with it is also removing a lot of red tape that allows it to operate more efficiently. That red tape that held back the private sector. Now, some some argue that, well, the government's more accountable, so we can get we can get away with getting rid of this red tape. And maybe you agree or disagree, but that's something that you I don't think can be overlooked.
4: Yeah, I think the red tape issue is something that we face here in the United States, especially with the, the Affordable Care Act. But I, I think it's more okay. that the red tape is structured in a way that it actually ends up. Benefiting most of the insurance companies, and in turn is regulating rather, you know, providing care to people. In terms of the, you know, all what it is that's driving up the cost of healthcare and what most of the cost of healthcare in the United States go to, at least as measured from Canada, and this goes to the same study that I that I cited that was published in the Annals of internal medicine. It's called healthcare administrative costs in the United States and Canada 2017. So it's a measure of the United States versus only Canada from the study quote of the 3.2 percentage point increase in administration's share of U.S. health expenditures since 1999, 2.4 percentage points was due to growth in private insurance, private insurers overhead, mostly because of high overhead in their Medicare and Medicaid managed care plans, which is one of the reasons why I argue that there needs to be reform in both the Medicare and Medicaid programs. I think Absolutely. that Republicans have sabotaged those. I think that they've that they, they've 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 regulated I, them and structured them in a way that, that that allows the private sector to abuse them for the sake of a profit, which has reduced the overall efficiency of the operation of these programs.
3: If I remember correctly, um, I know that overall, so the overall profit margin of providers that the average profit margin of, pro, of providers who have Medicare or Medicaid receip, uh, uh, patients to any degree, is about 5 to 10%, which is average. But 70% of providers actually get a, take a loss because some of them take on more Medicare and Medicaid patients. And the loss is often anywhere from 10 to 40% per procedure. But the issue, if you look at it, is that, um, that Medicare... Don't,
4: don't some insurers get, get loans or grants from the government, though, that, that cover a lot of Medicare or Medicaid patients?
3: That, I... I don't know how i don't i don't know what to ex, what extent so i i can't really say but i do know that um what was i gonna say oh yeah so medicare uh the organization has the information because they they take they pull providers like okay what is the cost of providing this like the, just just the cost of providing this procedure the labs the the the, the the, the doctor, the hours and all that. And they have that data. They just choose not to reimburse at that level for a lot of procedures for a lot of providers. And one of the more interesting things I saw when I, when I found this out is I looked at the, is that right around about 1967, 1968 is right around when healthcare costs growth decoupled from inflation growth, which is shortly after Medicare. Now, I, I don't remember exactly who was in control of Congress in... Uh, offhand that time so i can't maybe it was republicans maybe it was a Democrat. what was maybe. the
4: year again so 68? 67,
3: 68 67 68 uh, yeah it
2: um, was, uh, was democrats but that uh, 30, I so. well i think that was, wasn't that wasn't that nixon well, i don't I think he had i don't think he had the congress though during that period yeah. Yeah. when did nixon come into office was that 60 64 69, 69 I oh, was. Six,
0: oh
4: it was oh it was a lot later yeah you? it was it was after it, oh, was after it was
3: lbj okay yeah
4: oh yeah yeah I uh, old, good, about good about, uh,
3: good, good about uh, B, lbj yeah that's right the great society the 60s yep. LBJ, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry but, um, so if, your phone isn't silent if you drop it on the floor
4: <laughs> i did want to say that i i have very much enjoyed the, this healthcare discussion i do have some more rebuttals that, that i'd like to make but I, being honest i do think it is a little bit tangential to the the overall discussion that we're having plus i hey, would like both steve true. and Stephen to uh to chime in here as well <laughs>
5: Yeah, so I was just going to ask you, um, Steve. Like, what's your kind of like idea or your opinion on like taxation? Like, do you go like into kind of more sort of crazy land and think that it's theft, or like, are you okay with some, or like, what's the?
2: No, tax, taxation is necessary to maintain government, and we need government as a as, as a necessary evil. Unfortunately, um, I don't I don't consider humanity to be able to govern itself without uh having some kind of uh some kind of overarching structures to ensure that we don't go around killing each other and you know doing you know, anything that we really want to um praying on the week and all that kind of thing uh do i think that uh we should have an equitable tax across the board i think if, if especially if we're looking at a socialist system as as the end game everybody should be contributing the exact same percentage amount should not vary. There should not be a progressive tax whatsoever. Well, you said under a socialist yeah, the, system. the whole under idea a socialist of system a... specifically. Well, if everybody is earning the same amount and everybody is contributing and, and getting those that's, same benefits, well, see, that's the thing. That's, I, I don't. That's think not that socialism.
4: A, yeah, I don't think that don't. a socialist system advocates that everybody earns the same. I, to me, it's socialism is anyway. just. To, to, to me, socialism is just economic democracy. It's just the means of production being collectively controlled and demo- collectively owned
5: and democratically controlled by the
4: workers. by, by the workers by the working yes class. yes well, so wow.
2: which
5: yeah but the so idea so right, so of right, like so. a flat of a flat wage and a flat tax, flat tax. Is, that's that's kind of more so kind of found under like some kind of like communistic states or like in in that kind of event it either way it's it's it, it's not what what would be found under a socialist country and it's not what me and leo are advocating for
2: true so, true yes so it be progressive tax, in, in both well, your opinions, so. then? W- yes. Um, you, uh,
5: yeah, my whole kind of, like, my very, very, very quick idea or, like, my very, very quick opinion on uh, taxes is the more you
2: earn, the more you pay. As simple as that. Well, I mean, that's technically the way it would work with a flat tax.
3: That's true. It, 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 in, it, in a it,
2: sense. So, go, look, go ahead. And, and, <laughs> hmm.
3: No, so uh, one of the biggest criticisms of a flat income tax is that it puts an undue burden on the lower-income earners, which is absolutely true. It does. But what you you could do is simply have where it only kicks in above a certain threshold.
4: So wait, hold and Just to to understand what you're saying, you're you're saying that it would kick in – that people under a certain – Annual income might not necessarily need to pay that tax that it would well, kick yeah. out so, a so so fund. so
3: basically, uh, you only you only pay let's say uh, flat. This is just hypothetical. Uh, mm-hmm. Is a, a flat fifteen percent only everything above eighty thousand dollars a year, or a hundred thousand, or whatever? You can just pick pick whatever.
4: Yeah. But
3: yeah. so then, so your tax revenue will be lower. Although, uh, the overall average tax rate of the entire workforce is fifteen percent. It's Mm -hmm. just that the thing is that the the bottom 40% are net tax recipients. So it's not just like everybody. So it's really roughly uh, in terms of income tax revenue, the top 50% pay like 95% of income taxes.
4: Uh, Yeah. The the thing, and this is another thing that, that, That is contentious between me and other leftists on the internet is that the wealthy do actually pay a larger percentage of taxes but i i I, and i don't think that a majority of leftists like myself or steven here would, would necessarily disagree with that i think that what we would disagree with is the idea that the wealthy are paying a fair portion of the income they earn in taxes when you compare the income they earn and the taxes they pay on that income to everybody below them where we pay significantly more taxes relative to our total income as compared to people who make even a million dollars a year. They're paying several – oftentimes several percentage points less on their total income in taxes than we are, which I don't think think is fair.
3: That, that does raise the important question. What is a fair tax uh, or fair share as as the, the common refrain is? Because one thing, one there's two ways to look at this. What's the tax, fair tax rate? And then what is the fair t- portion of the total tax burden you're paying? If you look at the portion of the total tax burden that each quantile, decile, whatever is paying, the rich pay a larger portion of the total tax burden than their portion of the total AGI. And this it actually is an increasing portion until you get to like the top 0.001 percent and then it starts decreasing again it's still a greater portion of total tax burden than their portion of total agi but it so the real question is do you want them paying a bigger portion of the total taxes or you just want them to have Basically have less money. I mean
4: Well, it it, it I mean, it, it sounds bad, but I think that there's certainly an argument to be made when it's dug into, but I want them to just have less money. I don't mm-hmm. think that that it I, I, I genuinely do not believe that there is a way that you could justify one individual earning forty something million dollars a year. I don't think that one individual can contribute productively in such a way that they earn that much money. I think that they make that much money because they have have the power to write their own paychecks,
3: but CEOs don't pay, uh, write their own paychecks. The stockholders, uh, the, 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 the stockholders pick the CEOs. It's the
4: a little, it's a little <laughs> nuanced, but the executives and the shareholders work very, very closely, ensuring that the majority of the wealth generated by a firm is f- funnels into their pockets.
3: Now, you're, you are partially correct in that a CEO can influence the stock price, and if more of their compensation is in stocks, then that—that's that, that, yeah, so stock you're, options, yeah. yeah. But uh, actually, that, I wanted to circle back to something, back to what we were discussing before, is that do you uh, have a meaningful distinction between a worker co-op and, like, just a, a, a traditional corporation with an ESOP program?
4: Yes. Um, I think that an ESOP, what is it, employee stock ownership? Program um, is that what it is? That I believe stock option is. program, something it's like that.
3: It, it's stock that. ownership uh, program okay. or policy. Yeah.
4: Okay. Um, th- f- from the and I, I must admit that the research that I've done on the differences, while somewhat substantial, is not f- really all that thorough. But from what I have seen, is that ESOPs don't seem to provide the same level of control over how the firm operates, nor do you they don't. seem to to contribute as much. In the revenue back to the workers as a worker cooperative does, whereby an ESOP allows an employee to own stock in the company, which I'm not going to say is necessarily a bad thing, but they're, rarely are they owning stock at a level that allows them any substantive say or word in how that firm is operated, whereas a worker cooperative would, would essentially guarantee that.
3: No, oh, you're right in that. The, it, so there are worker-owned and like an ESOP program, you become a worker owner, but you don't become a worker manager. You don't necessarily have a significant voting stake in, in determining uh, this the, the executive board or 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 even being eligible mm-hmm. for it kind of thing. It's just that I bring that up because there are one like. Because if you, if you want them to have a bigger stake, but when you have more worker managers, like then you get kind of a little bit too much input and a little really too quickly.
4: Much. Can I ask what you mean by worker manager, just so that I understand exactly so, what it is? Sure.
3: So either you're actually a manager yourself, or you're selecting managers and you're kind of overseeing. So I, I, I it's, it's probably a better term for it. But okay. what I mean is, is like if you're if you're an owner, you're an owner. But if you're like if you are a union, okay, we're gonna we're gonna select our CEO, and then all the workers have an election, and or you know the, the workers then vote. That would be kind of like but only the workers. That would, and it would be among the workers because you don't bring in an outside one. That that's probably what I would probably uh, call a worker manager. Okay. But there's probably there's, okay. there's probably a better way uh, to to articulate that and. Uh,
4: yeah, I, I don't think that with a worker cooperative, what I do believe that managers and supervisors and executives would be voted on. I don't think that it would have to be reserved to people that are within the firm. I think that it would just be more a, a democratic process whereby certain people can say, hey, you know, I'd like to take up this managerial supervisory or executive position and and all the people that are employed by this firm collectively have the ability to vote on who has submitted themselves and who they think is is going to best encapsulate the vision that those individuals have for that company and i think that it, it just so like, like i said and it i keep bringing up the phrase but i think it's the best way to, to summarize what both myself and Stephen um believe in is is economic democracy a democratization of the workplace where our firms are controlled democratically the same way that our governments are um and i i know that there are a lot of Objections that are brought to that, especially in terms of, oh, well, you're forcing people to give up their businesses and what have you. And well, the government's forcing people to structure themselves this way. But we already pretty much force people to structure businesses within a certain manner as it is. You know, there's only so many different structural forms you can take when you start a business. You can't go anything outside of that. And a lot of that, I would argue, is beneficial. It ensures a level of of sustainability. It ensures a level of of community with these corporations, although I think that it could definitely be increased, um, and a level of accountability and transparency, although, again, I think that that could be increased. But I, in short, no matter what system you have, you're going to have to have some level of authoritative structure which ensures the sustenance of that system. And in socialism, it would be no different. Um, I personally wouldn't argue for the government mandating worker cooperatives right away. I would argue that that the government and financial institutions – I personally believe the financial institutions should be decommodified and run through the government, but that's a different discussion for a different day – should provide incentives for businesses to structure themselves as a worker cooperative. And then if that doesn't do enough to push a a movement toward worker cooperatives, then I think that the government should step in, yes.
3: I I, I would say that – we should allow firms and people in general, because a corporation is a voluntary. Or people people voluntarily organize, voluntarily organize, collect their resources, pool their resources to try to achieve something they couldn't on their own. Unions do it, HOAs do it. If only worker quarters.
4: cooperatives do it.
3: Worker cooperatives <laughs> do it exactly. So I think any we should allow all forms of voluntary organization, and the market, and then let the market decide, provided that we don't have. The, and Then the the government's role is to intervene interfere where there is fraud where there's theft where there's you know violation of people's rights that kind of like and that, that's, that includes not honoring contracts or just straight up assault or abuse you know and that that their, their role like, people will decide what is most valuable and if you, as soon as you decide that once you decide the, the legislators are going to decide what you can buy and sell, and under what conditions. That's when the legislators are the first things bought and sold. So we should add, we should minimize the degree of interference by the state, because then corporations can then take over, or unions can take over, or whatever.
4: I I agree with that. Maybe in principle, but I think in practice, what happens is when we let the firms decide what sort of structure is going to exist. How they're going to structure themselves within our market system. What we find is that a system that has become dominant, quite frankly, I would argue, I think this is evident throughout history, is that these firms structure themselves in a way that maximizes the the revenue funneled into the pockets of a very, very select few number of those who sit at the top of these firms, that they utilize these firms as a tool to maximize the amount of wealth they can create for themselves. And this is one of the major criticisms I would have with the capitalist system in general, is that I think that the way that the system is inherently structured, it will be utilized to maximize the profits and maximize the revenue that is then distributed to a select few number of those who own those very industries and markets without considering the needs of the workers below them.
1: I've got a request before we do go into Q&A. Oh, I do want to forgive me, S.O.D. I know you had a, you had a round in the chamber ready to fire back. However, <laughs> I, just to hear from Steven and Steven, before we go into the Q&A shortly, in case you guys had anything, I know it's moving fast. And so oftentimes it's uh, challenging to know when that uh, time to jump in is. I want to give you a chance to mention anything you wanted to add.
4: Just really, really quickly. I'm going to run to the bathroom <laughs> quick. I, I deeply apologize. I'll be right back.
3: Actually, I actually had a question, but I, I definitely want Steve and Steve to get another chance. Uh,
5: yeah, so the, the last time that I kind of uh, chimed in, it was on the whole issue of um, of taxes. And uh, just to kind of just like very, very quickly kind of sum up, um, Bernie got a lot of kind of like, you know, flack for saying this uh, last year, but like I, I 100% agree with him. I don't think... I would just kind of expand on it a little bit. I don't think that billionaires should exist either. I don't think that billionaires should exist in the same country where people don't make enough money to survive, where somebody is working forty hours a week and they are and they are still coming up short on you know money for food, for rent, for bills, whatever it is. I don't think that that should be. I don't think that those two th- two things should coexist within the same uh, country. So I think that, like you know, taxing uh, very very wealthy people and and like look, the whole reason why he got a lot of flack for that is, is because, like oh you know, but what that would mean is that somebody can have nine hundred and ninety nine million dollars and still be ins- incredibly rich. And be like never probably be able to spend that money like ever. It's just going to get passed on to their children and their children's children. Taking some of that money and redirecting it back into you know low income uh, neighborhoods, into states, into you know pushing it into education, giving people access to healthcare. All of these things can be done by simply making it so that billionaires just don't exist you know, maybe that's a little bit of a harsh kind of statement. And I, I like know that there's going to be some people who are not going to agree with what I have just said, but I don't really think that that's too much of a, I ask you what um, you just said. Basically said just kind of expanding on the whole Bernie Sanders saying that billionaires shouldn't exist. Um, oh yeah. 100%. Just, I, you like, you, there's no way you can earn a
4: billion dollars. It, it yeah, can't happen. I get mm.
5: that. Like that there's some people who is going to disagree with me, but I don't really think that that's too much of a fair compromise, you know? I know uh, can, can I ask a really really quick question a genuine
4: question? You want to hear? It,
1: just from it, it, Steve, as we hadn't heard oh, from oh, Steve yeah. <laughs> from the capitalist side yet. Sorry, <laughs> sure, I apologize. And sure. my, I, I just go into Q and Go ahead, Steve.
2: I I, I, don't, I don't think that it's. I mean, I, I don't understand what the what what the issue is there. I mean, specifically him like of just Bezos or. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of another Elon Musk. Musk, Bill Gates, That's yeah. that was actually the name I was yeah. trying <laughs> try to remember here. Um, you know, they don't get their wealth out of out of a vacuum. Some that money's coming Correct. to them in some form. Yes, I mean they, we all. What I hear a lot from the social side is that those individuals that that make those kind of, that kind of money have uh have some kind of obligation to society i'm pretty sure that many of them do provide a lot of uh benefit to society just through their uh innovation their their profit their employer that those that they employ um we look at uh bill bill gates and what he provides uh society even though some of us don't agree with some of some of his his ideas um what incentivizes someone to get to that point where you can even extract that amount of money from them? Where's where's the profit? I mean, if that profit doesn't exist, if you've already decided, well, you cannot make over this amount of money. Where what what decision does he make at that point? It's like, well, if, if I make 34000000 $34 dollars, they're going to just take it away from me anyway, anyways. Why would I even work that hard? Where's where's the where's the incentive at that point?
4: I don't think that Jeff Bezos has an incentive to, or Elon Musk or Bill Gates really have an incentive to do anything anyway. I think that a majority of the innovation that flows out of these companies has absolutely nothing to do with the individuals who own them, like Bill Gates with Microsoft or Jeff Bezos with Amazon or Elon Musk with Tesla. I think think that the innovation flows from the workers that they hire to work at their firms and that those very people should be receiving the credit for the innovation, not the billionaires who hired them. That the wealth that these people generate is extracted from the labor provided by everyone that they hire to do their jobs. Most of these billionaires don't really do anything at all. Most of all of the administrative work that they would otherwise do, they pawn it off to other secretaries and administrators that they hire. They spend most of their time on their private jets and their yachts and their country clubs golfing with all of their big rich billionaire buddies doing nothing. Yet they make all of this money despite not really contributing anything to the firm that they own while everyone below them contributes labor out of their day, time out of their day, time out of their life, time with their friends and their family, time building up who they are as a person, who they want to be, contributing labor to these firms that is an extracted out of them, extracted out of the labor that they provide and captured by people simply because that person owns the business that they work at. You I don't to. think that it's fair and I don't think that it's an equitable system.
1: We well, want to, let's see, and give you I want to, I'll, I'll, a super ahead. short and pithy SOD response, and then okay. we got to jump into the Q&A. So,
3: so try to address both. One, the whole billionaire shouldn't exist. The math doesn't really work out. You could take 100% of all billionaires' wealth in the U.S. It wouldn't fund the U.S. government for even a year, and then next year you wouldn't have any wealth to take anyway. It's very much balking at big numbers without context. Two, uh, in, in the case of Amazon, 80, some eighty percent of Amazon's profits are through AWS, which is only twenty thousand of its eight hundred and ten thousand employees. The rest of the consumer services are at razor thin margins, as is. So, this idea of redistribution, or they're not extracting, they're really taking a small amount from every single labor, and that's really it. It the math doesn't work out where if you just make billionaires not exist, we can solve all these problems. You're not really going to get that much wealth from them, and then. You, once you take that wealth, it's productive wealth, you won't be able to take it next year.
1: We can jump into the Q&A. I want to say thank you very much for your questions, folks. And we want to let you know that our guests are linked in the description. We appreciate our guests. And so we do thank you guys in jumping into your questions, folks. We do appreciate all of them. This first one coming in from Secular Socialist says, Stephen, is there any Irish phrase you could teach the American audience?
5: um like it's we do have a lot of irish phrases but i like it it would it would we're listening (laughs) like there's so oh god um like we we have already used a tick so like that's kind of something that is used to refer to a person who has you know like a very like I don't know why I did that with my hands. It was... Anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but um, you know, like a, a very nice ass. But we already use "take" as somebody who's stupid. So we kind of, we don't really kind of use that. We have a grazing system. We have taco, cheesy taco and cheesy taco bacon. It's fantastic. Um, I do think that like um, Ireland has like butchered the English language. Like in, in, the, in just like how we use it. Um, so there was a time in in Irish history where we would look outwards at some other countries and we called it the uh, emergency. It was called the emergency, which every other country in the world called World War Two. Uh, and the absolute pinnacle of this sort of just butchering of it, and I'll leave it as uh, this, James. Um, had we terrorism up north in the seventies, had we fuck, we'd a bit of trouble. It, it it's just it just makes no sense at all.
3: You've got it's, it. I have, a que- I have a question for cider about that. Is the Irish bushing of the English language, is that like a form of protest against the
5: English? <laughs> oh, that's um, a good question, Josh. No,
3: that's a
4: really I, d- good
5: question. I just sort of think that the Irish soul is just a much more of a free and a loose being and there's too much rules in the English language. Like there's a wall yeah. of English language in between me and you and fuck is my chisel. So that's yeah.
3: the, the, the English language is really just three kid languages in a trench coat. It's it's yep. <laughs> it
1: next up. That's, a, thank that's you. a good synopsis. Appreciate your <laughs> question. This one coming in from secular socialist strikes again, saying to Steven and Leo by the Steven, they mean cider and port and Leo. Most leftists are socially left. First, you consider yourselves to be quote unquote woke. Why or why not?
4: I I don't know what is meant by the word woke.
2: Yeah, I, I just, just
4: just really quickly, the word woke I don't think actually has any. This is gonna be oh, how do I word this? This is gonna be a very unorthodox way of wording this, but I think that people will understand what I mean. The word woke has no meaningful meaning. If if you can kind of understand what I. Yeah. mean by that so I, I i don't know what they mean i i don't i don't i don't know what they mean
5: you got yeah, it. i don't i don't really consider myself to be that woke like i'm i'm on the kind of side of like a, a lot of the woke standpoints and stuff like that but like really yeah I, I just i don't really consider myself to be that woke
1: juicy and thank you very <laughs> much for your question this one coming in from meduse nco says Why is it that only individuals with nothing... Let me just pull this over. Okay, starting over. Why is it that only individuals with nothing want or believe in socialism? Successful people aren't interested. That would tell me something if I believed in socialism.
4: Um. Well, very. there's been a number of very successful individuals that have advocated for socialism. Richard Wolff is a very successful individual. He's a, he's a Marxist. Um, Noam Chomsky has expressed support for numerous Marxian ideas. People like Martin Luther King have advocated for socialism. Karl Marx was, I would argue, quite a successful individual who invented what socialism and communism, what Marxism, who the person it's named after, what these are. He defined them. It seems to me that it's getting at this point that, well, the only people that want socialism are those who think that they, they're privileged and they're entitled to all this. Well, you know what? People might disagree, but there are things that humans are entitled to by virtue of being a human, like healthcare education, water, food, shelter. No human asks to be born. We shouldn't thereby have to really do anything to receive the things that are requisite to our survival. Those should be guarantees.
1: Juicy and secular socialist throws his or her hat into the ring once again saying, Stephen, you said you've done stand up on stream before. Do you think certain topics are off limits or shouldn't be joked about?
5: oh my god no 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 no. i i have what a lot of people would kind of consider to be a dark sense of humor i don't really consider my sense of humor to be that dark but like i joked about i joked about topics that like you probably shouldn't joke about i i think that like you know comedy can be like it's it's my coping mechanism so if i go through grief like i like on the day that my grandfather died i was cracking jokes all fucking day like it's just like like i understand that like sitting around a table and you know like being sad and feeling sorry for yourself that that can be some people's mechanism and you're welcome to it but it's just not for me i don't yeah i don't think that this whole thing about like you know the like woke sjw's or anything else like this that they're like they're like killing comedy nah man look at <laughs> Look at fucking Ricky Gervais. Look at uh, Daniel Sloss. Look at like any of these like bigger comics that like are constantly talking
1: about these things. Nah, man. Comedy's not going anywhere.
4: I'm sorry, See, but it's the conservatives have that have no sense of humor.
1: Bring it up. Since we're in the ballpark of the topic, allegedly, I had read an article that allegedly stated that socialism done left had a apparently said some things and then claimed that they were a joke. Is it okay to say the things that socialism done left had said as a joke?
4: It, It, you see, it really depends because what you'll find and, um, I, I know. Really, that, really sorry, Leo.
5: I'm kind of out of the loop here. I have no idea what we're referring to. Um, so, so, <laughs>
1: socialism Done Left. Don't say any of the words on this.
5: I, stream, <laughs> Leo. I, I won't,
4: James. You know me. I'm not going to do that to you. I wouldn't do that to you. But I'm, Socialism <laughs> Done Left made several racist and other bigoted comments mm. on Discord. There were screenshots and they were from like six months, several months ago, something like that. Um, the thing is, is that he said that they were taken out of context and he he wasn't meaning anything and that he was mocking people that you know actually believed those things and- honestly, when you look at the broader context of the discussion that was had on Discord, it seems that that is the case. And that's why what I was going to initially say is that it's a bit nuanced. We often hear from people who make racist statements and this, that, and the other that, oh, well, you know, I I was just joking. But what what we need to understand is the broader context in which the joke applies. There are certain jokes that we can make that deal with race that are funny Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. reasons that people can pick up on and understand and know that it's a joke or you can make a joke about the race and the joke is racism. And that is drastically different than making a joke that concerns race that isn't about the racism. So whether or not one considers what SDL did okay or not, I think really depends on the framework at which they're looking at it. I would argue from a broader framework, it seems at least that these were jokes, albeit very, very ill-placed jokes, but jokes nonetheless.
1: What have you got, S.O.D.? I think you're on mute.
3: Uh, no, I was just yawning. Uh,
1: okay. <laughs> I, I, did, I, did have, I did have one
3: thing, to, one, one topical thing to share regarding dark humor, if, I, if it's all right. Yes. <laughs> all right, I'll share my screen real quick.
4: Oh, here we go. Oh, 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 oh.
1: oh. oh, oh. <laughs> Hold on. One
4: oh, I knew I'm, it was gonna be good.
1: I'm slowing <laughs> it down two seconds. Um, the audience can't see it yet, but I'm I'm almost there to where they'll be able to see it. Oh um, no! I've it's just got off. to shrink it down because I was super zoomed in for the last screen share. Um, two seconds. So sorry, folks. <laughs> I'm curious if people in the chat are already guessing what it says, but let me. Um, oh god! Dep-
3: depending on what circles you frequent, you, you've either you you've definitely seen it a lot or for sure. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, now they can finally see it in the audience because the screen share, I've adjusted it. So you're a very sick man. All right, next up. <laughs> <appreciate> your... <laughs> Going to the question from, is it pronounced pooping poopa poopamans? Thank you very much for your question, says Leo. If a company is collectively owned by the workers, wouldn't that make the workers share holders to me it does and i prefer it over right now but it sounds like you believe the opposite
4: it depends on whether or not there is a um a larger market that which shares of companies are traded upon most worker cooperatives that do exist or have existed don't have shares just like the vast majority of companies that exist on the planet don't have shares and aren't traded on a market. The shares aren't traded on a market. I can't speak for any other countries, but in the United States of America, the stock market accounts for, and its value accounts for roughly 15% of the value of the U.S. economy. When we speak of the stock market, we're not speaking of the communities or the, 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 the rather the, the companies that exist in the communities that you drive through. We're not speaking of middle America. We're not talking about, honestly, a large portion of the economy. We're talking about the largest firms within the industries that we operate within. And quite frankly, I don't think that measuring their success and their profitability, which is what the stock market, let's be honest, is is a measure of is their profitability, is really a measure of the the overall success or productivity of the economy and the success of
1: the people who participate within it. Gotcha. And Van says communist company, everyone makes the same salary. Why bother with the stress of running the company if you can push a broom and make the same salary
4: well number one Come the, the idea of a company wouldn't exist under well the, the, the first thing I need to say is neither me nor nor Stephen cider report are advocating for communism at least I don't at the current instant, um number two companies the concept of a company wouldn't really exist at least in the way that we understand it in communism and number three under communism everybody doesn't earn the same thing that that essentially misses the point of what communism really is I don't know if you have
5: anything to add Stephen. Oh no no I, no! I I wouldn't have anything to after that. Yeah, you kind of summed it up perfectly. Neither of us are advocating for communism, and that would yeah.
3: So. Yeah, I think I think whoever posted that has a misunderstanding of what communism is. Uh, communism is a classless society, but also a moneyless society. So it's it, his question <laughs> is kind of incoherent to what communism would actually be.
4: Can I just thank you, Josh, in the fact that you properly understood what communism is.
2: Very
1: I appreciate welcome. that. <laughs> I very much appreciate that. You got it. And Bubblegum Gun says, "Most respectful debate I've seen so far. I agree. This has been really respectful. Yeah. So thank you guys. It has been a real yes. treat." And Bubblegum Gun also says, "Government is a nece- is as ne- <clears throat> is a government is a necessity as much as theft is, but if you look empirically, government has created the most evil." Taxes are the seeds of authoritarianism.
3: (laughs) Oh, is that is that that Um, specific to anyone? Any particular person? I didn't quite hear that.
1: I don't think
4: so, but so here's
3: here's the issue that so this is coming from like the libertarian aspect that and which I don't completely disagree with, but it definitely is taken too far where. The idea is, okay, you only have – you cannot extend rights to someone else that you don't have yourself, and you don't have the right to take someone else's property by force, so you can't simply vote to take taxes. But you can organize voluntarily and then have a structure that is funded by taxation, but it depends on the manner of taxation and also the manner by which that taxation structure comes in. It. So, it, so governments can just be thieving scoundrels, but it's not inherent to government. It often – you could argue it often is, and I, I think, like so like excise taxes or sales taxes, which you're, the government is providing the very structure of property ownership. So any exchange of property, I mean, I, I don't see how that's necessarily theft. But income taxes is a little meh. Wealth taxes harder to say because the government isn't deciding the value of those things. But but nonetheless, uh, taxes aren't inherently theft. But many forms of taxes can manifest as a form of theft.
4: I, I just wanted to add really quickly because that the whole taxation is – stuff, and I, I do agree with with the vast majority of what the, what Josh just said. Um, the, the whole tax—I call them anti-taxers—because the, the the idea that taxation is, is theft. I would sum it up as just being asinine. Um, we would not have the societies that we do in most of, at least the Western world, if it weren't for taxes. Mm-hmm. What taxes are, or at least what they're supposed to be, is a society collectively coming together and agreeing to pool uh, a particular amount of their resources together to fund particular programs or incentives or what have you that generally benefit all of us together. And we see this in terms, maybe not here in the United states but in many western countries we see this in the form of their healthcare systems uh, their education systems numerous other public transportation which is significantly more developed in a majority of the western world outside of the united states mainly because personal automobile ownership it's, is a thing in the united states more so than others but it's, it's the, the u.s the main and canada point is that, but yeah <laughs> yeah 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 um the, the main point is that taxation is not theft i agree with with josh that taxation i think that there are ways that taxation can manifest itself as theft and i think one of those is lowering taxes on the wealthy and increasing them on everybody else requiring those who earn less to uh, carry more of a burden carry more of the tax burden i don't think that's, that's very fair but I I, the, the, I I think that you can't have a technologically advanced society the likes of which most western countries enjoy without the concept of taxation and without taxation most western countries would not exist in the manner that they do today
3: i would i would probably disagree on taking it that far i mean so bef- the u.s had two industrial revolutions before we had an income tax so it's certainly True, yes and uh, we mostly, there are uh, reasons for that though well the reasons were an income tax was unconstitutional until the 16th amendment in 1913
4: I but i don't know if it was really unconstitutional well, because no, it, it, it wasn't outlined in the constitution that you can't do it it was just made well, an
3: aspect that. Well That's so we more want. specifically direct taxes have to be a portion of Kind
4: of like ending slavery.
3: Well so what I mean is is that the kind of income taxes Congress wanted to pass and what is what is common in Western countries, that would have been unconstitutional prior to the 16th Amendment because they weren't apportioned among the states in that, okay, California has 12% of the population, 12% of the tax revenue from this tax has to come from California, regardless of how many people are in California or regardless of the actual amount of income, AGI in California. And uh, Congress has already uh, ruled that direct taxes outside of the income tax per 16th Amendment are have to be all they all have to be apportioned among the states which includes property taxes which then would extend to wealth taxes which is why we don't have we, we can't have a national pro, a national property tax but I um Sing- S- uh, singapore is an interesting example because it has much lower taxes overall but it has uh government ownership of certain industries the dividends from which uh through the temasek holdings uh provides revenue through almost a market mechanism to fund the government so i yeah. so it's it's i, I don't and I, I would I would definitely disagree that taxation the whether taxation is theft or not does not depend on mm-hmm. who is being taxed, like oh it's unfair if the poor are being taxed and the rich aren't. I, I do
4: agree know. with that. and I just want to specify I wasn't I that that is not what I was saying. Okay, but yeah, yeah. I do agree with that sentiment. I,
3: I I I thought maybe you misspoken, but we probably don't have time for you. We, we could revisit that maybe later, well, like in at another debate or something. Because that's there's taxes. We could have a whole debate on taxes alone. So.
1: Bubblegum Gun strikes again. Says you will never have a capitalism under government if you pay property tax. Surprise! That's not ownership. We have a mixed economy, not capitalism. So the thing is, us
3: or I mean, I don't know. Well, here's the thing. What I. I would say this. uh, Given that the government defines and is at least right now the the mechanism by which property is defended and defined, that the fact that they tax you on the thing that they're allowing as a legal phenomenon to exist doesn't mean that you don't own it. Uh, The the, the purpose of ownership – a simple test of ownership is if you're able to exclude use by non-owners, the government does not have the right to just come up – Ideally, anyway, the government does not have the right to just come onto your cases. property, to, uh, to just come your property and do what they want with it. There's eminent domain, which is kind of BS, but but nonetheless, there are definitely restrictions on the government regarding how they can use their property, use your property, and that's why you do own it. If you, if the government eminent domain is an example where they suddenly be like, yeah, you don't own it anymore. But whether you own something or not is not simply decided on you paying a tax for it. Is, is really my point
4: um J- james could, could i have you repeat that question i'm sorry but i did want to respond. it's going to be really quick but i can't remember exactly the question no worries. if you want to move on though that's
0: fine
3: uh so what i remember it being is essentially because if, you're ta- if your property is taxed you don't own it and so then you without as long as the government is taxing your property you don't have capitalism
4: that's yeah roughly so oh yeah the mixed economy thing the the, the, the idea of a mixed economy is uh, being honest not really a thing in economics it, 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 there's no, a mixed economy. It, that that term is just very much nuanced and that would be a whole ass discussion in and of itself. Capitalism is essentially defined as private capital accumulation. That is, that is one of the most, at least succinct ways to define what capitalism is and what is it, what it entails. That capital can be accumulated privately by private by individuals privately. If you have that, you're capitalist. Even if that's regulated in certain ways, if that if capital accumulation is still private, that is capitalism. You might have strong social welfare alongside that. That's great. I would advocate for that at least in principle um it would, you know depend on what particular systems are being implemented anyway it, it, as long as the accumulation of capital in a market can be done privately you are dealing with a capitalist system
1: we'll jump into this next one from khan the stoner lynn who says anyone familiar with pierre joseph Proudhon or economic mutualism the synthesis of property and communism and what do you think of anarchism
4: I have never heard of it? that person or that yeah. system. And
1: is that a, as far as
4: anarchism, it? I'm not necessarily a
1: proponent of it. I think that's uh, open to everybody okay. to answer. So, what an- like. so the
3: problem with, uh, so. Uh, the issue with anarchism is you have, you have the anarchist paradox where if you re, so it's important to remember that anarchy is just absence of rulers it's not the absence of rules but if you re, eliminate what you call the state but they're going to need some means of defending and defining property that if that becomes a an accepted authority they functionally it, it's not name – uh, and indeed become the state as well. So, anarchy is arguably not something that's attainable. Uh, but uh, there are minarchists who try to say the, uh, that propose that have the minimum, uh, the least amount of government that's practicable.
2: Yeah,
3: and me, as, I was gonna say Steve?
2: eventually, in an anarchist system, there's going to be organizations that grow just. Just naturally, just as they did in human history. I think that's true, but I think the point of anarchy is that
4: they're not centralized systems, that they're very much communal, that that the communities essentially govern themselves rather than there being a centralized form of control that governs all communities. Like, I I think that the phrase that Josh SOD used is is really good, that it's not, it's not. It's the elimination of rulers, not the elimination of rule. There are still going to be rules, and there are still probably going to be some sort of hierarchical system. I think that most anarchists would would say that that system is much more communal rather than being centralized and bureaucratic as we're used to, and that that's what most anarchists would um,
1: would, uh, would 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 argue for.
3: Um, if I can, uh, c- really have... and then we do have. Well, to, no.
1: I want to give cider a chance if he wants to go ahead.
3: Well, I was going to say that because uh, Anarchist Ireland is actually uh, an example of what Leo was saying, and maybe Cider has more uh, insight on that.
5: Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say I have no idea who that person is, um, uh, but um, Anarchist, like, yeah, I don't like the whole idea of like you know. Uh, Causing like massive s- systemic change through like a revolution and like even you know like a violent one. I mean, obviously, you know that's how the United States was kind of founded. It's how Ireland mm-hmm. got its independence as well. Uh, I would, however, argue that we did it a little bit better. The only reason that I would say that is because in 1916 we fought the British who had guns with sticks. We brought sticks to a gunfight and we won. So just this- want to point that out. Hey, Thank Australia
3: you. lost to, what? Well, uh, to Kiwi, not Kiwis, but uh, cassowaries and uh, <laughs> ostriches. And they lost to like so, a bunch of flightless birds. So I think mean,
1: <laughs> <laughs> they lost to dinosaurs. Next up, Con yeah. the Stoner Lynn strikes against us. What do you all think about intellectual property?
4: it should be protected mm-hmm. the, the the one distinction i would make it, it, the, the reason i would pity. make it yep yeah, exactly is that i wouldn't argue it's really intellectual property is the development of something like a vaccine or uh, something along those lines i don't i i'm I, people can disagree i'm sorry i don't think that somebody has rights to that but like a book or something along those lines yes i think it should be protected
3: uh so this is uh The problem with intellectual property is that most of it is infinitely uh, divisible. Like it's not actually a rivalrous uh, commodity. It's like a club good, like a subscription to Netflix or uh, a newspaper. Well, not even a newspaper, but like something like Netflix, where it actually is an infinite amount of it. And the the problem really is that intellectual property laws go too far, where it's essentially admitting that I am afraid that my customers or competitors are going to make better use of this property than I will. If you're actually so. I, uh, patents are is fine, although I think the patent system needs to be reformed as well. But uh, intellectual property is uh, is not an easy answer, I guess I should
1: say. You got it, Steve or Steve?
5: I'll just I echo everything Trump, Leo Robert. said. So
2: <laughs> you got I'm it. actually going to diverge a little bit from Joshua. I think property rights should be protected, or prop, um, I'm sorry, intellectual rights. Sorry.
1: I got gotcha. you. You got it. Thank you. Interesting gentleman. And then Khan, the stoner. Oh, that's right. The legend Rives. Thank you very much for your question. Was how does socialism stop inflation?
3: Um, Same way capitalism does? I mean, I don't understand why.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that question, I don't,
2: because there's... Maybe he's just trying to state so that maybe a, it's a better way to... Uh, Yeah, I I don't know because
4: there's so many market factors that affect inflation that even under a market socialist system, it's not like – I mean maybe somebody could make an argument that it would be maybe better or worse to handle inflation. I don't really know. I've never looked into that, but I would argue from my limited knowledge that the market forces as they operate under a market socialist system would probably control inflation in – at
1: least similar ways as we have now got John Khan, the stoner lynn said let's see <clears throat> socialists remember robert owen a wealthy industrialist who gave everything to build socialism twice new lanark and new harmony indiana
2: what no i don't know that name I, I actually saw that name during my research, but I didn't. I didn't look into it too too deeply.
1: Juicy secular socialist says James asked Stephen to tell us a joke. Now, <laughs>
5: Jesus Christ, just poking me with a stick. Just dance, monkey dance. Um, put me on the fucking spot. Um, oh God, a uh, quick one. Um. What does a make-a-wish child and a carton of milk uh, have in common? An expiration date. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I didn't say my sense of was humor was dark. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, we'll that's jump, dark humor.
1: Jumping to the next one. Bubble, bubble Gum Gun says private tanks protects property. I don't need government stealing my property to protect it from being robbed. That's an oxymoron. Second Amendment. What? Is that a I question? Mean, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know what. What is?
4: What are you? I, I think what he's trying to he's, say is that, yeah.
3: he, that because he's able to defend his own property with rights afford- with that which is afforded by the second amendment that he doesn't need the government to do so and then the government therefore does not have a legitimate claim over much if not all taxation that it that does i think that's what he's saying i'm not sure that's
4: yeah, I mean,
2: an interesting argument um this I, I, th- there's there's only so much limit that an individual has control over a certain uh piece of property though i mean yeah you can say well i've got to take myself but there's going to be someone out there with two tanks I mean it's yeah I mean it's just I, I, I mean, unfortunately you could unless you've got your own nuclear arsenal there's other areas in the world that are going to be able to take your property from you. regardless of, uh, what your second amendment rights mm-hmm. are. And I never promoted the second amendment as well. So awesome. well, you know, I mean, I, I mean, v- v- v-
3: shows. Vietnam shows that you don't need a nuclear arsenal to defend yourself. It's <laughs> very much true. <laughs> uh, history, like, you know, guerrilla warfare. So the, the issue with war is that if you're, if you don't have the, the, you know, you need the political will to prosecute a war as well as the material. And, uh, if you just ma- if you just cr- guerrilla warfare can create a lot of casualties very quickly and all those soldiers coming back is going to kill political will. And that's that's why the Viet Cong basically won. So, I mean, history was replete with guerrilla for- warfare working against technologically numerically uh, superior foes and including the Revolutionary War for the
1: U.S. Mm, yeah, so. Very. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. And this that's one beat the British. D. Mac appreciate it, said, can an observation be fallacious?
4: Can an observation be fallacious? It's well, an interesting
3: question. Um, it feels like those, like, so an argument can be fallacious because it comes with a conclusion.
4: Yeah, what I was going to say uh, is that I don't think an observation could be fallacious because an observation is not itself an argument. An, ar- an observation right. would be represented by an argument. The argument can be fallacious, but the ob- the observation itself, I don't think fallaciousness would apply to that.
3: No, I I, I I do agree. Uh, uh, an, an observation is at most a a premise for an argument. It doesn't it mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. So I mean, yeah. I, I you, you can't you can't you can have observations that are wrong because either
4: hallucinations, you, things like that, Illusions,
3: yeah. or maybe your sensors aren't do not don't have enough. You know, either your actual sensors or like your yeah. or your transmitters don't have enough fidelity. There's all sorts of reasons where you get incorrect information, but that's not the mm-hmm. same thing as being fallacious.
1: Yeah. You got it. And Displace Gamer, thanks for your question. Last one we have here says, My question market socialism is just another form of capitalism. It mm. is still private ownership working within a market. Would a better name be social capitalism?
4: No, because it isn't private ownership. The firms in, in a market socialist economy would be collectively owned and democratically controlled by the working class, which is the, the, the yeah. signifying. Attribute of socialism
3: I think I think what he's trying to say is that It's one thing to say that the workers at that Firm are the owners, it's another thing to entirely say The working class all own that Firm and that firm like they, like they all, So I think that's what he's saying is that Only the workers at that firm own that firm As opposed to all the workers own All of the firms So I think that because in that case The workers who own that firm They are the exclusive owners Of that firm and in sense they are A, collect- a collectively private organization i think that's what his argument is
1: d mac yeah, just doesn't
4: strike me as capitalism
1: d mac says thanks you're welcome d mac and thank you and we want to let you know folks our guests are linked in the description as it says here on the right side of your screen highly encourage you to check them out as we do appreciate our guests and that includes if you're listening via podcast folks if you have not already Pull up your favorite podcast app, such as these right here on screen, look up Modern Day Debate, and subscribe for listening to these debates via podcast. And if you're listening via podcast, want to let you know, all of our guest links are in the description box there as well, as we really do want to say thank you to our guests. We appreciate them. And with that, gentlemen, it's been a true pleasure. We really do appreciate you. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you.
5: Thanks so much, James. It's been a real well, my pleasure. For
1: me. Oh, yeah, this has been great. Absolutely. Really respectful. I really do. People mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. And folks, I will be back with a really short post-credit scene in just a moment, letting you know about upcoming debates. So stick around for that. And I'll be right back.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.